friends, Dick Foth here. It's the first week in June 2022, and this is the second in a two-part presentation that we're calling The Warrior's Path, Freedom Isn't Free. In our last podcast, we talked about Memorial Day and its roots and what it means, and then moved into talking to my friend, Lieutenant General Retired Mick Kicklider who was describing to us his responsibilities and his experiences between 1991 and 1995 when he had been asked by the president to lead the charge, if you will, on commemorating the 50th anniversary of World War II, at which time they did that over a four and a half year period around the world at the sites of major battles and the cemeteries connected with the results of those battles. And whenever I talk to my friend Mick, I'm just deeply moved by it. He had left us, if you will, by indicating that the Clintons, President and Mrs. Clinton, during that commemoration for D-Day, had had a luncheon on board the Britannica with the Queen, the Queen's yacht, and then transferred to a Liberty ship, a cargo vessel, that had provided supplies for all those years to folks in Europe and to the military forces there. And then the Clintons had transferred to the USS George Washington, a United States aircraft carrier that was going to be part of the honoring ceremonies for that day, that next day, June the 6th, 1994, commemorating June the 6th, 1944. We had left them there, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But let me give it this context again. When you think about 150, 160,000 Allied troops, Canadian, British, and U.S. forces landing on the beaches of Normandy off the English Channel in northern France on one day, and the strip of beach was 50 miles long, and several thousand would never get off the beach because they gave their lives. It's just difficult to imagine. As my father would say, it boggles the mind. One young correspondent who was there, who's now gone, the late Andy Rooney, described it this way in an article he wrote called My War. There have been only a handful of days since the beginning of time on which the direction the world was taking has been changed for the better in one 24-hour period by an act of man. June 6, 1944, was one of them. What the Americans, the British, and the Canadians were trying to do was get back a whole continent that had been taken from its rightful owners and whose citizens had been taken captive by Adolf Hitler's German army. It was one of the most monumentally unselfish things one group of people ever did for another. On the afternoon of June 5th, 1994, President and Mrs. Clinton had arrived on the aircraft carrier USS George Washington. The next day would be a huge day, according to General Kicklighter, but they had things to do, or there were things to observe and celebrate on the afternoon of June 5th. And he describes that for us.
at the same time that, that this was happening, late in the afternoon on the 5th, we had an airdrop to simulate the 82nd and 101st who dropped into Normandy the night before, before the attack the next morning. These are paratroopers. Obviously. Paratroopers. It was, mm -hmm. it was troops out of the 101st and the 82nd. But also we had World War II veterans. <laughs> and I forget the exact number, but it was quite a large number. And that's a long story, but uh, but anyway, we had a number that that jumped in, World War II veterans that parachuted in the afternoon of the 5th. You've told me this. This is one of my favorite parts. Originally, you had said, you know, the liability, or others had said the liability. And their health. To, and their health. And, and, and Because these are 80-something-year-old guys. Well, some were 80. Most were in their late 70s. Oh, okay. At that time. But there were a couple in their 80s. But the medical part of the Army and the lawyers said, you know, first of all, they shouldn't do this. And so I took that message back saying that, you know, we'd love to do it, but if you could guarantee that nobody would be killed or we wouldn't get a permanent disabling injury to any of you, you know, we love you, we, we think the world of you, but we don't want to see you get hurt. And they were not happy with that answer. So at a breakfast, and we started having breakfasts in the White House, primarily for the World War II veterans and their families with the president, uh, before um, Memorial Day and before Veterans Day. So at a breakfast, and I think it was a Memorial Day breakfast, some of these veterans were there in uniform, wearing their old uniforms at the breakfast. They cornered President Clinton and said, you know, we got this guy, Kicklighter, that uh, <laughs> said we can't jump. We, we really want to jump. So the president called over uh, an active duty uh, general that was there who was uh, special forces, I think. And uh, anyway, he, he asked him, can they jump? And he said, I, I think they can. And so my my decision uh, got tossed up in the air, and so I rescinded it. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. And then, uh, and they but, the, but the proviso was yeah. that, first of all, you got to take a physical. you got to have a physical that says you're physically able you got to get recertified by some of these parachute clubs that say yeah. you, you're qualified to jump. And if the jump master says the winds are too great that day, right. whatever the jump master says, you will not grumble. That's the final answer. How'd that qualifying thing go where they go to the parachute clubs? Did they all do they that? All, they all claimed they did it. They claimed. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I trusted them implicitly. My favorite part of this, and I got to hurry here, but they jumped. And then you couldn't find two of them. Well, two of them, we, did, we couldn't count for it. And, you know, your heart beats awfully fast. <laughs> last thing you want to do is either, and there were a lot of rivers, as oh, yeah, you know, find somebody drowned in the river, yeah. yeah. And so they afraid they landed in the river and got tangled up in their chute. But, but anyway, we finally found them, and both of them had been picked up by the locals, taken to the local bar, and they were really having a great time describing what really happened 50 years ago. Telling stories. Oh, yeah, they were... <laughs> They, they were having a great time. They didn't want to be found. And they were a great bunch, I might yeah. add. They added a great deal to the whole thing. Wrapping this up, you had the meeting the night before with the President and Mrs. Clinton. You had a little exchange at the end where somebody encouraged you to tell them what the next day was like, and then you went the next day. Right. I'd just like to wrap up with those two pieces. That little exchange on the aircraft carrier about what will tomorrow be like. Well, after the airdrop, um, and everybody was accounted for. I, I got on a helicopter and flew out to 
uh, the aircraft carrier, George Washington. And my job was to go out and describe to President and Mrs. Clinton what the events were going to be like as they began at Normandy the next day. And, and so I did that. And, and the first event was aboard the aircraft carrier the next morning where the president and the first lady dropped a reef in the water, remembering all those who were lost at sea before they got ashore. So that was the first event at sunrise, as I recall. Next event was at Point de Hoc, where the U.S. Rangers went straight up a cliff and in the face of the enemy. They took out some big guns, and that was the second event. Then the next ceremony after uh, Point de Hoc was Utah Beach. And then there was a luncheon with all the heads of state, and then we would come back and have the final event at the uh, U.S. Military Cemetery at uh, Coville. Overlooking at Omaha Beach. Omaha Beach. A lot of the the barriers that were there right. on D-Day were still there. It was, it was quite an awesome site. Yes, it is. If you haven't been there. And so, and that was the final event. And, and I, I described, you know, how that sequence and would be all the events. And then as I started to leave, uh, David Gergen was a, was a special assistant to the mm. president. He said, uh, General Kicklider, now tell the president, really, what tomorrow is going to be like. And I was kind of caught off guard. I mean, I, I told everything <laughs> I knew about tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, tell him really what tomorrow is going to be like. And so I thought for a few minutes and I said to the president and Mrs. Clinton, I said, well, tomorrow is going to be the most emotional day you probably ever had to face. It is going to be extremely emotional. As you go through these events, they're going to build. And when you get to the cemetery at Omaha Beach, the Coville Cemetery, you are going to be totally mentally or emotionally exhausted. It's going to be a very tough emotional day. Uh, that's basically what I, what I said. At that point, General Kicklider described for me again, and I've heard it several times and never tire of hearing of it, the sequence of events that took place at Coville Cemetery the next day overlooking Omaha Beach. And just as a descriptor, some of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan and the opening sequence of an old man amidst the crosses and stars of David is at that cemetery. There are almost 10,000 United States service personnel buried there. This is how General Kicklider described the events of that morning. We always tried to make sure that the key, a key member of the program was a World War II veteran. Walter Cronkite was a master of ceremonies. The guy that introduces the veteran, that introduces the president, is also somebody that's prominent in the area. And so in this case, it was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Shalley Kashvili, who had been the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe before. And he'd helped plan all this before he left. So he introduces a guy named Joe Dawson, Joe Dawson in World War II was a, about a six foot five uh, tall Texan that was a company commander in the 1st Infantry Division on the beach. And the battle was going, I mean, they were pinned down, they were taking a lot of casualties. 
it really looked almost like they couldn't get off the beach. Mm. In fact, and I believe this is correct, General Bradley had already written a message that they were going to withdraw the troops off of Omaha Beach and reinsert them in Utah Beach, which was not getting a lot of resistance. And to bring those those uh, Higgins landing boats back and load them up again would have been extremely dangerous. But a young army captain, company commander, took a platoon and put together a Bangalore torpedo, and they ran it all the way up the beach, all the way to the top of the beach, underneath the concertina war, and they blew it. And there was an opening, and they went right up and then began to open on up again, and that opened the beach, and that saved the battle. He was given the Distinguished Service Cross for that action, uh, Hmm. Joe Dawson was. Joe Dawson introduces President Clinton. So the chairman introduces Joe Dawson, and Joe Dawson describes, you know, what it's like to be on the beach that day and what it's like to, to have made that thrust up the hill. And then he introduces President Clinton, who's a keynote speaker. Well, President Clinton tried twice to speak and was overcome with emotions, and, and it took the third time before he could actually begin to speak. And, and so it was the power of all this. And then when, when the speaking was over, then we had a flyover. We had aircraft from World War II, and then we had the modern aircraft. And then we had the missing man formation where these four aircraft go in, in, in three directions, and one goes straight to heaven, is the one who didn't come home. And then after that, we had 17 Navy ships that were representing the Navy and they line up and they pass in review and the last ship to pass is the aircraft carrier. And there was a young lady that was sitting in the president's office that night when I briefed the president. Very nice young lady. She came up to me after the ships had passed. Tears were running down her cheeks and and she said to me, General Kicklighter, I had no idea what you were talking about last night when you told the president and Mrs. Clinton that this was gonna be an emotional day. And she says, I fully understand what you were talking about. How much we owe those men and women of that generation. In closing, I asked General Kicklider to reflect for us for just a moment or two on the effect of World War II, the cost. Because for a younger generation or younger generations, World War II is like the Civil War, might as well be the Revolutionary War because it's not in their lifetime. But this is what he said. I think when we we think about World War II, it it is so hard to grasp how destructive and, and what great loss of life we had during that war. You know, the greatest way to preserve peace is preparedness and strength. And we should do everything we could to prevent wars. But if we can't, we need to win them fast and with minimum loss of life and destruction. World War II was, uh, it's hard to even grasp how destructive it was. 60 million people lost their lives in that war mostly women, children, and the elderly who got overrun. Now, most people don't realize that in a war. It's not just the combatants that get killed, 
but it's the collateral damage that kills a lot of innocent people that are on the periphery of this war. And then also in World War II, many people were killed because of their ethnic background, their beliefs, their infirmities in death camps and concentration camps. The Jewish people alone lost somewhere in, I'd say six to eight million people were murdered in concentration camps. And that war, um, the outcome was not certain. We were not prepared for that war and we had to get prepared in a very short time. And the way we got prepared was was the loss of lives of young Americans as we prepared. We should have been prepared. The winds of war, the warnings were all around us, but we were not ready for that war. And I guess one of the saddest parts of that war is something that Churchill said when he was visiting the U.S. afterwards as a, as a I think he was a guest of President Eisenhower. He was speaking at a small college and he said, World War II was probably one of the most preventable wars in history, and yet we didn't prevent it. And we should really learn the skills of how to prevent things like this from happening and occurring. And we sit at a moment in time where it feels like the tipping point in a lot of ways with what's going on now, overseas and all of that. Somebody asked a friend of mine whom you know, Vern Clark, the former head of the Navy, someone asked him, a young person said, is this the start of World War III? And who knows the answer to that? We pray not, we hope not, we, you know. And she, we, as you, we should work with all diligence to ensure that it is not the yes. start of World War III. Yes. The best skills, the best leadership, the best commitment that we can have, we should do everything we can uh, to preserve peace, not, not at the expense of freedom, but we should do everything we can to keep peace in the world. McKicklider, General, sir, thank you for sharing your thoughts, your stories. Thanks for the service all those years, not just the 36 in uniform, but the other 25. That's a long, it's a long history of, of commitment and skills that you brought to the table. Well, President of the University, <laughs> Dr. Foth, it is an honor to be with you again, as we have been together so many times in these past 30 years. It's true. And uh, I, I hope we got 10 more. Oh, man, yeah. 20 of course, more. Of course, you and I are both, this is a bad way to say it, you and I are both in our ninth decade. Yeah, that, that is a bad way to say it. That makes us sound. <laughs> but true. <laughs> Thanks, Mick. <laughs> Bless you. Blessings. Thanks and blessings. What a delightful, classy, serious gentleman General McKicklider is. I love being with him and around him. Well, that's it for this couplet called The Warrior's Path. Freedom isn't free. Thank you for being on this road trip with us. Numbers of you are going to be taking more road trips this summer. I think I'm going to take one. I've decided I'm going to take one. Just a couple of months on the road, whether it's real or metaphorical, makes no difference. If it's in my head, it must be real. <laughs> and we'll just do that. So we'll be coming back to you in a couple of months. We're used to closing our time by saying, thanks for listening. If you'd like to write a couple sentences or review, that'd be great. And then we go out with this music. Sounds like this. 
However, because of the seriousness and sobriety of this moment and our grateful hearts, I want to leave you with a song that you've heard perhaps on television, perhaps you've heard it in person. You've been at a memorial service for a fallen soldier. And at the end, they play a 24-note tune that we call today Taps. At the end of the day on military establishments back a couple hundred years ago, they would play a tune that was a French tune called Extinguishing Lights. But during the Civil War, a General Butterfield called his bugler in and took the last five measures, I believe, of that song, of that tune, elongated some of the notes, put spacing in, and created what we know now as taps. They think the word taps comes from a Dutch word for tattoo, which is what they call the last song of the day in military parlance. But I think it would be worthwhile for us to close this couplet of programs with that as we have explored Memorial Day and the 78th anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1944. In 2012, the United States Congress designated TAPS as the National Song of Remembrance. So please don't view this as being morbid or maudlin or overly sentimental. This is a remembrance of the freedoms that have been bought with the lives of people who have gone before us. And I think it's entirely right that we sign off this way. God bless you. Thanks for listening.